Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. My guest today is Edith Hall. She's a professor at King's College in London and the author of Aristotle's Way, How Ancient Wisdom Can Change Your Life. In this episode, you'll learn it's better to think of happiness as something we do, not something we are, why doing the right thing ethically is so important to happiness, how we all have a unique potential based on our talents, why achieving that potential, the best version of ourselves, is so important, how to make better decisions, how to handle bad luck, and the role that habit plays in achieving the good life. There is so much wisdom packed into this one. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Edith as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Edith Hall. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real-Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well-lived. Edith, welcome to The Good Life. Hi, I'm very pleased to be with you. Nice to have you here. Your book, Aristotle's Way, presents Aristotle's time-honored ethics, what we might call his guide to the good life, in a modern contemporary language, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And you're bringing Aristotle into the modern world for the reader and making his ideas more accessible. And his lessons cover a lot of ground. He can help us make better decisions, improve our character, resist temptation, find a balance in life, treat people better, build stronger friendships and relationships. He was really a prolific writer. And I hope we get into all these subjects, but I wanted to start with who Aristotle was, especially for listeners who may not be as familiar. Aristotle was born in quite a small, but very beautiful Northern independent Greek town called Stagira, the fourth century BCE. And he was the local doctor's son, physician, the medical doctor. So they weren't particularly rich, but they were perfectly comfortable sort of middle-class family. And he sadly lost both his parents when he was about 13 and was adopted by his brother-in-law. He had an older sister who'd married a very kindly gentleman who embraced him, took him in and realised that this guy was just extraordinarily intelligent, right? He was most fortunate to go to a household, somebody who just spotted it. So this guy, who's called Proxenus, sent him off to the best university in the world and probably then the only really big university in the world, which is Plato's Academy. And from 17 to 37, this young man just reveled in being in the company of the best brain in Greece and owning his young man's philosophy on Plato, who he adored but radically disagreed with. Then Plato died, and in the way of envious colleagues, Aristotle should have been made head of the academy immediately, but he wasn't. They passed him over in favour of somebody much more tedious. And then he had a very strange 10 years because he really hadn't got a source of income. And he went and first worked for a king in Turkey and tried to help him sort out his government, make it more democratic. But then he got the dreaded invite from Philip the second, the dreaded one-eyed tyrant of Macedon, who said, I've got this very able son, Alexander, who's going to be great. (laughs) You have to come. I don't think Aristotle particularly welcomed this, but you didn't say no to Philip, right? Everybody, there were a huge number of murders in his court. 
So he went and put up with this until Philip was himself assassinated. <laughs> Saw some of the worst behaviour, I think, that anybody's ever seen in this incredible despotic court. And as soon as Alexander the Sun marched over the Hellespont and into Asia, he never came back, he went off to India with the elephant. Aristotle bagged the money he'd saved, went to Athens and opened his Lyceum at the age of 49 and had his own rival university, which was actually far better and far more influential and also had natural sciences in and physics. It wasn't just humanities. And he managed about 12 to 13 years before he died of prolific output. So he's an incredible example to late starters apart from anything else because he didn't get the opportunity to be who he really wanted to be until he was 49. Well, now that I'm almost 49 myself, I have to say that's very encouraging to hear that my best intellectual years are ahead of me. There, there is hope. I found it very interesting that Aristotle seemed to believe that we humans don't fully mature or rather we can't fully attain wisdom until we reach the age of 49. And he was very specific about the date. So why is that? Not just that. The point is that before that, he wasn't fully financially independent. And he'd got taskmasters and duties. It always reminds me of the Bob Dylan song, you've got to serve somebody. But he knew the moment when he was free to do what he wanted, to hell with the rest of them. And I think spotting that opportunity or realising the moment in life when lots of us have jobs we don't particularly like for long periods, especially if we're financially supporting dependents and so on. But there comes a point where you really do have to make an effort to fulfill your own potential and dream your own dream and get on with it. So next year, Sean, it's you. It's a fascinating life. And he got to this point, as you mentioned, in Athens, where he founded his own school, the Lyceum. And he wrote, as you mentioned, very prolifically on all kinds of subjects. But the subject I personally we want to talk about today and the one that I think resonates most or perhaps he believed was the most important, was how to live a good life and how to live life well. And it's something that he took up and he wrote about. So let's talk about that because he kind of has this way of kind of presenting ideas as almost a straw man and then kind of taking them down like, well, maybe happiness is a cheerful disposition or maybe it's hedonism. So maybe kind of walk us through how he introduces this concept of happiness and how we should think about it. You're right. He starts from what he calls the endoxa, which are commonly received opinions about something. So if you ask a guy in the street today, what is happiness? You'll come up with various different definitions, which are not that dissimilar to Aristotle's definition. Number one is being rich, right? Having a lot of money. So he just takes that apart and shows with the example of this, the richest man in the world then, Croesus of Lydia, that actually By the end of his life, he'd lost everything. He'd lost his wife, he'd lost his son, he lost his kingdom. Just because he'd acquired lots of material goods, that did not make him happy. Then there's physical pleasure. Yes, hedonism, which he actually, Aristotle is particularly contemptuous of people who think that if you literally just gorge yourself on lovely food and drink all day long and have as much sex with everybody as you want all day long, life is one continual sensual sort of orgasm of of something. And of course, he says that can't be right because that's no different from the happiness of pigs, right? If you give pigs someone to reproduce with in a nice meal, right, then that can't be human happiness. So he goes through all of these things and comes up with his own definition, which is that it's 
not a state, it's a process. I think of it as it's not a noun, it's a verb. You do it. You do happiness in and out every day because it's your attitude to life. You don't acquire the state because the state of either orgasmic or physical or any other kind of ecstasy is always temporary. And you've also got to be active because he argues very strongly that you cannot be actually happy when you're asleep. Okay, because you can't, because you can't, you're not doing anything. It's got to be while you're actually living an active life. And that whole thing being a matter of sets of habits that you develop and experience that you acquire, and hopefully you get better and better during your life at certain kinds of decision and behavior, is only consummated on your deathbed, right? And even if your life has fallen apart and in external terms, you know, even if you've lost all your money or there's a natural disaster or you're widowed, if you can lie on your deathbed knowing that you jolly well tried to do your best, you have got an inner sense of peace and calm that somebody who is plagued by resentments either about things that they have left undone or about bad things they have done is not going to have that happiness. So you can't actually, as he says, call any man happy until he's dead because his whole life, it's a whole life arc. So I've been trying to be happy in an Aristotelian way or do happiness in an Aristotelian way since I was about 22. I absolutely didn't get it all even remotely on track till I was 32, even though I knew what I wanted. But I'm making no guarantees. I mean, if I could turn into a horrible person tomorrow and start being mean to my kids or something, then I could destroy it all. You've got to keep going. Okay, you just covered a lot of ground there. So let's let's break that down. One big takeaway is this idea that happiness isn't a state of being. It's not a noun. It's a verb. I think that's a great concept. It's very useful. It's a complete mindset shift. What Aristotle is telling us is we do happiness. We achieve happiness through activity, through good habits, by doing things, doing the right thing every day. And in the West, you're right. We often think about happiness as a state we hope to achieve, and it's often in the future. So we'll say, I'll be happy when, and then fill in the blank. I pile up a bunch of money, or I achieve a certain status at work, or we sacrifice the present for the future. We delay finding a spouse because we're busy working, or we don't have time for our friends because we're so busy trying to get to that future state. But all of that is a fool's path because if happiness is activity, it is doing, we should be doing happiness today. And that's really powerful. But let's go deeper here. If happiness is activity, then what should we be doing? I think reflection, funnily enough, although there are some terrible downsides to the confinement that's been imposed on a lot of us with this COVID-19 virus, there are three things that you can actually do much more easily if you're not having to commute to work or bustle around. One of them is spend time really working on your primary relationships. I've had very long conversations with my husband that I haven't had for years. The second is cultivating constructive leisure, right? It's a very difficult for very busy people. I actually find it really hard to figure out how to use my leisure because I've worked so hard and I've raised a family at the same time. I've never had any leisure. So I'm actually having to make myself learn how to garden. I'm learning new cookery skills, very much enjoying that. I think a lot of people are doing that. But the third and most important thing is it gives you time to reflect on your life's trajectory. And I choose that word advisedly because it means taking into account the past arc 
but also where it's going and what changes and modifications you might need. What dream have you left unfulfilled? What ambition have you left untried? I think that if people actually use this time to sort of focus any depressive feelings they've got into, well, what can I learn from this? It's going to be very helpful. And we don't usually get that amount of reflection time. Yeah, I think we often in the United States and in the West, we value productivity. And there's probably a lot of good reasons for that. But I sometimes have a challenge taking time during my day just for reflection because I want to fill it with what I believe to be productive time in some sort of getting work done. And then you go through day after day of that and you realize you haven't taken the time to reflect. What do you want to have achieved between now and the point of death? It's as simple as that. And then you set out, and he uses the analogy of uh, an outline sketch, right? You don't color in the details, but the outline sketch. So you might have a goal, you want to write that novel, you want to finish making an incredibly beautiful garden, you have a child who you want to raise absolutely perfectly, you have a set of projects. Almost everybody has got some kind of creative talent that they haven't actually fulfilled and develop, whatever that might be. And then to become very determined about trying to get there. I was really drawn to this idea of pursuing the best version of ourselves. According to Aristotle, this is an important piece of the good life. So can you tell me more about that? We're all born with what he calls a dunamis, which is a potentiality, right? There is a potential Sean or a potential Edith that was there when we were born. And provided we're given enough of our basic needs, which are cuddles, food and education, provided nothing destructive happens, we should be able to go on and become the best possible Sean. So the idea is that you try and imagine what the best possible version of yourself could be, including ethically. You know, there's so much wisdom in Aristotle's writings. I find it a bit amazing. We don't teach this stuff to people earlier in life. I went all the way through high school and college, and I wasn't asked to read Aristotle, and I find that surprising. It is, but that's why I wrote the book, because I wanted anybody who could handle 200 pages of reasonably colloquial English prose to have these secrets, these incredible tips on making a decision, choosing a partner, planning your life. And the one that breaks my heart, I go around to an awful lot of a day a week I spend visiting secondary schools, kids between sort of 14 and 18. And the one that really, I always think the one they're going to want is how to be persuasive, the persuasion chapter. Actually, no, what they all want is how to take a decision. Nobody has ever taught them how to take a decision. So they're at the complete mercy of violent emotions. So let's talk about that because decision-making can have such a big impact on our lives. What does Aristotle teach us about decision-making? when taking an important decision like, shall I chuck my boyfriend? Instead of going through Aristotle's amazing eight-step program to come to some sort of rational view, the most very most obvious thing he says is you must get a disinterested counsel, right? Not uninterested, disinterested. It's very helpful teaching kids the difference between those two. If you go and talk to your best friend, it's the worst possible thing because she will have a vested interest in whether or not you're going out with this person, because she probably wants to see more of you or less of you or something. 
you have to go to a professional <laughs> relationship counsellor, to somebody who life will be nowhere affected. I mean, it's just a basic, basic rule. But the very first one is, is verify information, right? So say another girlfriend comes and says, I saw your boyfriend's kissing someone else. Do you just act on that? Or do you go out and verify? You could start by asking him, right? So let me just sort of recap what we've covered so far. So Aristotle is saying happiness is doing. It's not being. Happiness is an activity. And the activity we should be pursuing is to become the best version of ourselves. And one way we do that is through better decision-making. And he's got these eight steps to better decision-making. And we make decisions, but sometimes we make the best decision we can, and it doesn't always work out. So what does Aristotle say about luck, the role of luck in the good life? Aristotle, far more than any of the other ancient philosophers and most modern ones, writes in a very, very committed, almost passionate way about luck. The best laid plans of mice and men, quote Robert Burns, go awry all the time. And all you can do is that somehow when you're making plans, try and factor in random bad luck. The spouse you've chosen so carefully gets run over tomorrow or has a blow to the head and changes personality, or you're in a very competitive field and you simply do never get the career that you want, or whatever. And he's the first person really to stare that straight in the face. And the the figure he uses there is Priam, who's been king of Troy. Very well, a very much-loved ruler all those years. has got numerous children, loving marriage, everything he could possibly want, and he dies ignominiously with all his children dead, having seen them die. So when Aristotle produces these wonderful analogies from what was then the popular culture, right, which is why I've tried to put a lot of movies that people know to illustrate these things. But he would actually say that however appalling the things have happened to you, and and I talk in the book about a couple of instances that have really touched me, people who lost everything in the tsunami, women like me who lost husband and children and parents and went from a very good life, total isolation. Amazing. But she has survived because she had some inner sources to draw on and knew that it wasn't her fault. And I think what I like about Aristotle is this candour. He doesn't wrap it up in sweetie papers. He knows it's tough. He knows just how tough it is. After all, he lost his parents when he was 13. That can't have been any fun at all. So he had some good luck, like his adoptive father, He had some appalling luck. He fell madly in love at 37 when he left the academy. He went to Asia Minor and she seems to have died in childbirth and he never married again. And he talks a lot about her. So this guy had really, and of course, the awful business over the academy and and being these envious, rivalrous people not appreciating that if they had put made in the head of the academy, they would, in his slipstream, have done so much better themselves. He suffered from lots of things. And and all of us had either very bad luck or bereavements that we didn't deserve, that were premature or envious rivals stabbing us in the back. I certainly have an academe. It's poisonous. I want to go back, if we can, to this idea of potentiality, because Aristotle says something that really resonated with me, which was try to find what you do that's unique and that brings you joy. 
channel yourself into that. And most likely it's in creative in some way. And that's where you're going to find your happiness. And you can't necessarily look to other people. What we often do, I guess the mistake, the fatal flaw is to live the life that somebody else has for us. Absolutely. And Aristotle has a very modern sense that all humans are born with diverse talents. And it's actually quite amazing how, if they're reasonably well looked after and educated, you know, in society, we do have people to fulfill every function, and happily so. That is an extraordinary thing about human communities, that in, enough people seem to come up who are good at maths, enough people who are good at, at nurturing and caring, and enough people who are good at Einstein's, who just break through to the next level. And that if those talents are spotted by carers when people are little, and people are encouraged to listen very much to themselves, I've really tried hard with my kids. So we just exposed them to as much stuff as we could. So films are different kind, entertainment's a different kind, hobbies a different kind, music a different kind, just plurality. And watch for pleasure. That's the other really brilliant thing Aristotle says. It's not rocket science. You just see pleasure. Child is doing it with pleasure. They won't want to stop. And you've just got to, instead of imposing it on them, and it's really believably important that this goes on. As parents, I think our ultimate goal is we want our kids to be happy. I have two kids, a 16 and 14. But then we get into, as you mentioned, pushing them in this way or that way, or we get competitive with other parents and how they're raising. And what Aristotle is saying, which is brilliant, is let it emerge channel their passion into what it is that will help them in their potential. You can start making compromises later. I mean, obviously, in this kind of economic structures we live in, there are enormous pressures to find a way to monetize yourself. But that should be the secondary part, right? The primary part has got to be that you're going to try and monetize something you actually enjoy doing in some way or another. You often hear people like, I heard Peter Sellers, he's a very famous theatre director, say recently that he could not believe his luck that he didn't paid to do what he'd be doing anyway because he loves it so much. And I actually feel like that. I genuinely adore teaching my students and researching the ancient Greeks. If you can, you are so lucky. Yeah, and I think what we all need to do too, personally, is to find out what it is that we do. Think about what our potential is. Exactly. And there's always time. I've had old ladies of 80 writing to me saying that they enjoying life more since they read this book and they've figured out some plans and they're trying to implement them and they're not so scared of death. It's never too late. It is quite tough though. I mean, the initial stages, if you want to decide to do Aristotle's ethics, you have to be incredibly honest. This candor is crucial. And I tried to get that over in the book. You've got to assess yourself quite brutally, not judgmentally, just very, very clearly. Because if you don't figure out where your big moral weaknesses are, you can't work on them. You're in denial. One of the things that Aristotle is really big on is self-knowledge. And you write about this in the book, understanding what our strengths are and what our weaknesses are, and then being able to take action. So how do we do that? He actually gives you a chart, which I've tried to reproduce. You can actually do this sort of questionnaire. And I found out it helps you with your skills. It helped me realize that I have a good analytical brain, not a creative one. I can't write poems. And I have communication skills. That's about it, frankly. So I had to find a job where the, those two were painful. But I also discovered or had to face that I'm highly vindictive and I want payback. 
okay but i've had to learn that if spending all my time thinking about payback makes me miserable and by far the best revenge is living well and that was a hard thing for you to overcome it sounds like well i still haven't i still have several minutes a day of unpleasant dark thoughts about how to get vengeance on people and it was really not doing me any good at all so but other people will have other ones some people have problems with anger management or they are unkind they're just not smiley and nice <laughs> and because my parents both of them very 50s parents we were all terrified of approaching them I mean, they weren't that bad parents but they never smiled and said yes dear what do you want so i made this vow when i had my first baby that i would always put things down and smile at them when they came to me right always you're tired you're hungry you're fractious having the kid come to the door but it's unbelievably important that they feel they can come at any time they want i think exactly what aristotle says was if you make a conscious decision to do it every time after a while it will become unconscious and that does happen this is his theory of habit forming yes aristotle talks a lot about habits and the important role they play in our lives it's critical to make virtue a habit and at the same time, take an honest look at our bad habits. This speaks to the self-knowledge point, to take a look at our lives and make an effort to change what is holding us back. Maybe you could talk more about Aristotle's theory of habits. It's just like when you first learn to drive a car, where well, you have automatics in America, but you know, when you're first using the gear stick, you have to think every time, shall I go into second, shall I go into third? I never think what I'm doing with that. And that the idea is that these good habits of relating to other people or fundamental instincts, all these kinds of habits do become much more habitual. At that point, you stop being somebody trying to live the good life, but somebody actually living the good life. Yeah, and that sort of relates to where we started with happiness being activity and working on something that's meaningful and constructive, something that's going to last. And if that's important, then habit becomes really important because we can turn it into this route process where you automatically go into that activity. You don't have to go into some kind of anguish and deliberative state of, should I do this or that? It frees up your mind to go to the next level. That's the idea. Yeah. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed learning more about Aristotle. I highly recommend Aristotle's Way, How Ancient Wisdom Can Change Your Life. I personally have found Aristotle sometimes challenging to read. You even mentioned this in the book. Also, he wrote two kinds of books. One was for his own students. We're talking like postgraduates in philosophy, which are the ones we got. He also wrote little mini pamphlets for the general public in much, much more accessible prose because he wanted everybody who could be remotely literate to have access to. We haven't got those. So my book is trying to fill that hole. He did want it to be accessible, but we can't all read at the level of a postgraduate in classical Athens. I mean, I've taken on Aristotle. It's a challenge. You really have to bring your A-game. You've got to stay concentrated. You've got to keep a lot of things in your head as you're reading it. It's very logical. I think a little dry at times. By contrast, you're bringing in examples from movies and songs and popular culture and relating it to your own life, which I found very accessible. I recommend it as a way to get introduced to Aristotle's thoughts if you're not familiar with it, or even if you are familiar with Aristotle, it's a great way to just sort of reinforce. So I want to recommend it, and I just want to say thank you for being on the show. 
How can people find out more about you and what you're doing and what you're writing about today? I've got a personal website, which is www.edithhall, or one word, .co.uk. And that's pretty much everything I do on it, including quite a lot more on Aristotle. And my Twitter handle, I tweet quite a lot about Aristotle, but also all kinds of things to do with ancient Greece. It's just at my middle name as well, at Edith May Hall, my full name. Great. Edith, thank you for being on The Good Life. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.